All we like sheep have gone astray, we've turned everyone to his own way, but the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But God demonstrates his love toward us, in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. To Martha, he said, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. And whosoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Before we open the word of God together, let's bow our heads together and ask his guidance and direction on our study today. Our Father, we recognize that as we come together, we focus upon your word. This is the highest form of worship, to study and know your word and to apply it in our own lives, to realize how tremendous it is to have your word before us, to be able to understand it from the beginning to the end and to be able to correlate it, to be able to see how magnificent it is as it connects intertextually from one passage to another one illuminating and expanding on another, that it goes far beyond anything any human being could could write or devise, even if they had a vision to do so. We are reminded that it is through your word that we are sanctified. That is, Jesus prayed, sanctify them by truth, thy word is truth, that this points to the ultimate purpose of our study of your word, and that is to grow into the likeness, the character of the Lord Jesus Christ. As such, we need to understand who he is. We need to know that he is the eternal second person of the Trinity who entered into human history to take our sins upon him on the cross, but that that was just the beginning of your redemptive plan, for in that we have redemption individually, but the focal point is ultimately towards his return and the establishment of his kingdom and the redemption of all creation, ultimately bringing human history to its conclusion. Now, Father, as we open your word today, help us to understand the what it is saying, the implications of it, and may we be uh, impressed with your greatness, your majesty, and your glory. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. This morning we're going to continue our study in Psalm 110. So you might uh, turn there, Psalm 110. The focal point of this psalm has to do with the future king, the messianic ruler, the kingdom that will be established, his dominion and his power when he comes. One of the things that we often uh, are hearing today, if you are watching news, turning on the radio, reading the paper, talking to anybody, looking at the Internet, uh, we're in an election season. And uh, everybody is a little, I think, distressed and tired of it by this time, just waiting for the election to be over with so we can go forward with whatever the new circumstance is. But, but the problem that we often run into as human beings is that we fall into the trap of expecting that the election of a certain person or a certain party will somehow solve all the problems, that this will fix everything. And that isn't going to happen this side of the return of the Lord Jesus Christ because 
while government is instituted by God, those who govern are fallen, corrupt creatures. And uh, they will rule for better or for worse. And often, uh, from our perspective, it seems like it's for worse, but uh, it all depends on their uh, personal uh, personal integrity, and that relates to a lot of different different issues as we've seen coming out of this this election. But we will only have perfect government when we have a ruler who has perfect integrity, and that person who has perfect integrity is the one who is described in this psalm as and as the messianic king the one who will come and the one who will rule. Now, what's important about this is, as we set up and why we're studying this and, and looking at this is it gives us a tremendous appreciation for the plan of God in providing the Messiah. We often spend time looking at the first, first uh, advent and what the Lord accomplished on the cross. But as we look at passages like the ones we're looking at today, that was simply setting the foundation for that which would ultimately be accomplished when he comes uh, in his kingdom established as the Messianic king and the Davidic king. This psalm that we're looking at is a psalm that is the most quoted psalm in the New Testament at least 12 times this psalm is quoted in the New Testament. It is alluded to, I think, a few other places, but that tells us that from the viewpoint of God the Holy Spirit, this is one of the most significant aspects of divine revelation. Therefore, it is important for us to really understand what is being said here, and I know that in the past I've taught it, I've taught it a little, uh, you know, in, in a more summary fashion, uh, as I, as a pastor, continue to study the Word and continue to draw out uh, uh, implications and applications of the text, sometimes I, I do what I did yesterday somewhat facetiously and told a friend of mine that I'm going to quit studying. I'm just going to give it up because I started off when I got back from the camp out yesterday with five pages of notes to cover uh, at least one of the verses and had about eight pages of notes to cover uh, the next three verses, which is what I intended to do. And after uh, studying and putting some things together over the next uh, hour and a half, I had ten pages of notes on the first verse. <laughs> There's a lot here. There are a lot of implications in this particular verse as it talks about the Lord Jesus Christ and who he is in terms of what he is going to do and what he is going to accomplish. And in view of the fact that this this psalm of only seven verses is quoted so often and referenced so many times in the New Testament, it's really important to understand what's going on here. Now, for those of you who are newer to the congregation, um, one of the things that we stand for that I emphasize as we go through Scripture is that the Word of God was revealed by God the Father through God the Holy Spirit and penned by various human authors. The Word of God is not something accidental. It's not the experiential reflection of the individual writers of Scripture on their religious experience, which is uh, what a lot of uh, Christian denominations think, that it's uh, good for faith and practice but not so much for other things but that all of the Word of God, as it has uh, was originally written and come down to us, was envisioned instantly and eternally in the mind of God who is omniscient. Now, 
you, I could spend a whole sermon just on uh, developing that last that last statement. But as Paul notes in 1 Corinthians chapter 2.16, the Bible, the Word of God, is the mind of Christ. It is the study of the Word of God, whether we're studying uh, some uh, obscure passage in the Old Testament or some favorite passage in the New Testament. It is all designed to edify us, to strengthen us spiritually, and to help us to understand who God is, so that, that nothing that is here is here accidentally. And as we look at the psalm and focus on what it teaches about uh, the messianic ruler, I want to remind you uh, 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 for a few seconds of our context. We're studying in Matthew, and we've come to this last situation in Matthew 22, where after being interrogated by the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the uh, Torah expert among the Pharisees, Jesus then asks a question of the Pharisees, and he says, what do you think about the Messiah? Whose son is he? And so he's really going to twist them up right now because he wants to focus on their and expose their misunderstanding of who the Messiah is. And so they give a partially correct answer, and they say that he is the son of David. And at that point, the Lord Jesus Christ quotes from Psalm 110, verse 1, which we've studied in detail the last two weeks. But one thing I didn't point out is that when we understand what the Bible teaches about Jesus, we understand he is the eternal second person of the Trinity. The triune God is equally omniscient. Therefore, all three members of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, all have equally known uh, the Scripture for all eternity. It is called the mind of Christ. In fact, John, at the beginning of his gospel, says, In the beginning was the Logos, the Word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So that Jesus is viewed as the living Logos, the living expression and revelation of God, so that that is uh, equated in terms of his thinking to what is written in Scripture. So what we see is in approximately 1000 uh, B.C., when David, by the Holy Spirit, writes Psalm 110. God the Holy Spirit and the Lord Jesus Christ are intentionally inspiring David, breathing this passage out, because in their mind they know that in a thousand years, when Jesus is incarnate, he's going to be using this very psalm, this very verse, in order to confound the Pharisees. This isn't accidental. There is a, the, the, this, these correlations in the scripture are, are not accidental. They're not something that, that students of scripture just look at and say, oh, isn't that nice? This over here seems like this over here. Let's just kind of string these pearls together and come up with something. No, there are, these are intentional connections that are built and developed in the word of God so that as we study and as we reflect upon the word of God, uh, we can pull these different parts together and come to a fuller picture of of God, of his word, of his plan of salvation, his ultimate plan of, of redemption, establishing his kingdom on the earth, and completely uh, destroying the impact of sin uh, in the universe. And so David quotes from this particular psalm, and as he does so, as we've reviewed, uh, and he talks about Psalm 110 and before the Pharisees, uh, the entire psalm would come to their mind. 
He's focusing on the first verse, but we know that that within Judaism, whenever you mentioned that, that was the title. They didn't have uh, uh, the Psalms enumerated like we do. They just had titles, and the title was from the first line in the verse. And so the Pharisees wouldn't think just of the first verse. They would think of everything that's in in this particular psalm. And as such, they recognize that Jesus is making a profound claim to be the Messianic King, the Son of David. And for and they've understood this more and more and more as they've gone through these these uh, uh, challenges in the past two, two chapters. And they're already plotting to kill him, but it's crystallizing in their mind that he is committing blasphemy by claiming to be God. But it is also a warning to the Pharisees that they would be defeated because this is a psalm that pictures the defeat and destruction by the Messianic king of his enemies. And if Jesus is the Messianic king, then they are his enemies, and he is announcing their destruction. And so this is more than just what appears on the surface of the text. And by that I don't mean we have, you know, some kind of... uh, uh, of mystical hermeneutic to understand the scripture, but to realize that there is a, a lot going on here, other than the uh, overt, the overt challenge to the Pharisees. So, in just a quick review, we saw that this this Psalm of David, that David wrote the Psalm as a prophecy about the future Messiah, uh, as he describes in Second Samuel twenty three one. We've also seen, secondly, that the future descendant of David would be a king who would be greater than David. And as an uh, um, ancient Near Eastern potentate, no one would be greater than he, but he recognizes that this one figure called my Lord is it will be greater than he. He is David's Lord, and he is the Messianic king. We see, third, that the Messianic king is seated at the right hand of God the Father. Uh, This is a position of of, uh, power, a position of privilege, but he is seated indicating that he is not, uh, not taking action. He seems to be waiting for something, and that's the fourth point, that the Messianic king is awaiting victory that Yahweh will give him. And that's what we see in the next two verses is Yahweh promises to give him victory and extend his his dominion. Uh, and then that is when he will receive the kingdom. So he doesn't receive it when he is seated at the right hand of the Father. And then we see fit that the Messianic king will come from heaven. And so this indicates as well or is consistent with the view that the Messianic king is divine and no human descendant of David would be, uh, or purely human descendant of David would be coming from, uh, from heaven. We have seen in the last couple of weeks that there's three basic divisions in the, in the psalm. In the first part, we see that Yahweh, God the Father, will exalt the Messianic King to his right hand, where he will await the defeat of his enemies and the establishment of his kingdom. It is that defeat of his enemies that is a key idea that we need to keep in focus uh, this morning. Then there is a shift that takes place when we get to the fourth verse, where Yahweh vows to make the Messianic king a priest after the order of uh, Melchizedek. He is going to be not just king, but he is going to be a priest king. This is important. And then as a result of that, third point, Yahweh will give the Messianic king a mighty and glorious victory over his enemies 
followed by a time of refreshment and exaltation to a position of honor and dominion. And we probably won't get to that until next week. So, as I pointed out, when we look at these verses, the first verse reads, The Lord said to my Lord, the first Lord in caps is God the Father, saying to my Lord Adonai, this is an indication, an implication of deity, but it refers to the second personage who is in heaven. It says, Sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. So we should note the use of the word enemies there. And then in the second verse, the Lord shall send the rod of your strength out of Zion. Rule, there's the command, rule in the midst of your enemies. Again, we need to make this connection between the enemies of verse 1 and the enemies of verse of, of verse 2. And then the third verse, your people shall be volunteers in the day of your power. In the beauties of holiness, from the womb of the morning, you have the dew of your youth. Now, that's going to be an interesting passage to go through, one that doesn't appear to make a lot of sense, and there's a reason for that. So, when you look at this word enemies, it's interesting. Uh, remember, in Hebrew, there's no vowels. In the original text, there were no vowels, and it's important to re- recognize that as in light of some things we're going to say, but it was just consonants. Now, a lot of people think that if, if you know, how in the world could they understand what was being written if all they had was consonants? Well, if I took a, something familiar to you, uh, a, a, a verse of Scripture or something like the Declaration of Independence or just um, some common saying and took all the vowels out and you read it, you would be able to understand what it means. You do this every now and then when somebody in front of you has a customized license plate and they have uh, five or six consonants there and you look at it and you immediately figure out what they're saying. They've left out the vowels. So it's easy. What I'm pointing out here is that the word enemy that we have here is this word that looks like an apostrophe is how you transliterate the aleph in Hebrew. And it is pronounced oyev when you put the vowels into it, but it is aleph, yud, vav. Now, if you look at the word for enmity, it's the same thing. You have the apostrophe for aleph, a y for yud, and the v for vav. And then you add a suffix, the h. So it shows that these two words, the word enemy and the word enmity, are cognates. Enmity is just a form of the word uh, enemy. Now, in Genesis 3.15, we see uh, this word enmity first stated in Scripture, where God says, I will put enmity, he's addressing the serpent, this is after the fall, when Eve has succumbed to the temptation, and then Adam as well, and God is outlining the consequences and the judgment for sin, and he says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your your seed, the serpent seed, Satan's seed, and her seed, and that term looks forward to the redemption promise. In fact, this is the uh, first indication of how God is going to solve the sin problem. That's why it's called the first gospel or the proto-evangelium. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He will bruise your head and you shall bruise his seed. So there is this picture from the beginning that the messianic seed is going to be involved in warfare to defeat uh, to defeat Satan and those who are aligned with Satan. This is frequently a 
uh, a theme in the Psalms. And we see in Psalm 92.9, For behold your enemies, O Lord, for behold your enemies shall perish. All the workers of iniquity uh, shall be scattered. And then we see in verse uh, in Psalm 2.2, another messianic psalm that is often and closely associated with Psalm 110, that's looking to the future when the kings of the earth will be aligned against Yahweh God the Father and his anointed the Messiah, says the kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against Yahweh God the Father and against his Mashiach and against his anointed saying so we see these enemies of God there is a going to be a future uh, battle that will bring to a head the uh, satanic rebellion the human rebellion uh, against God and the Messiah will be victorious Psalm 47, uh, 1 talks about this. Um, oh, clap your hands, all you people. Shout to God with the voice of triumph. For the Lord Most High is awesome. He is a great king over all the earth. Notice the emphasis on the majesty and the power of the king. That is a focal point we should keep in mind throughout this. Our attention is directed to the majesty and power of the Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ. And then the psalm says, He will subdue the peoples under us and the nations, that is the Goyim, the Gentiles, under our feet, that the nations will be defeated by, uh, by the Messiah. This is what is pictured. I keep going back to this passage in Daniel 7. Daniel 7, Daniel has a vision, and in that vision he sees the future kingdoms of man and then their ultimate destruction by the one who comes before God the Father called the Ancient of Days. In fact, as we sang this morning, we sang a hymn called, O Worship the King. Now, the king in this hymn is not Jesus Christ. It's God the Father. If we pay attention to the hymn, what it says in the first verse, O worship the King, all glorious above, and gratefully sing his wonderful love. Our shield and defender. Now those are common terms used in the Psalms to refer to uh, God the Father. And then it says the Ancient of Days. The Ancient of Days is not the Lord Jesus Christ. The Ancient of Days is God the Father. The Ancient of Days, pavilioned in splendor and girded with praise. We live in a world today that wants to say that somehow we're in some form of the kingdom. We're not. Um, this is a, 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 a really grows out of amillennialism. Postmillennialism came up with the idea that we could bring in the kingdom. That idea got secularized and brought into politics, and so since the end of the 19th century, liberal progressive uh, ideology has been under the idea that they could bring in a kingdom, but now it's become, uh, by the early 20s or 30s of the 20th century, it became a secularized version of the kingdom, a utopia, and there cannot be utopia if man is fallen. Oh, yeah, I forgot. Liberals don't believe man is fallen. Liberals believe man is basically good. But the Bible says God created man perfectly righteous in his image and likeness, but then he fell. He became corrupt. That doesn't mean he's as bad as he can be, but it means every aspect of his being has been corrupted uh, corrupted by sin. 
So uh, today we live under the rule of God the Father, the sovereign king ruling over the world, and that's, that, that is to whom that psalm is addressed. Jesus, because he is seated at the right hand of God the Father, is not going to come in his kingdom until sometime in the future. So we, it is wrong to, to talk about Jesus now as the king. It is wrong to talk now as if there is some form of the kingdom, yet this has become um, common language among evangelicals, and it's easy to get infected with this. And, and when I talk to uh, people in the congregation and others about uh, some of the things that they experience in Bible college or seminary, they, it, it, everybody talks like this. It's loose, bad, non-biblical language. And so we have to be careful, careful with that. Daniel 7 shows this, that there's one like the Son of Man who's going to come with the clouds of heaven. And he comes to the Ancient of Days, and then in verse 14 we read, Then to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom. That is not until he, just before he returns to the earth, uh, or as he returns to the earth, as we'll see in, in this particular psalm. And the result of that is that all the people's nations and languages will serve him. And that is what we just saw in, depicted in Psalm 47 is verse 3. He will subdue the peoples under him and the nations, the Gentiles, under our feet. So we see an order of events. The ascension of Messiah to heaven. This is when Jesus ascended to heaven in Acts chapter 1. Secondly, then he is seated at the right hand of God on my, as Jesus says, on my Father's throne, not on his throne, Revelation 3.21. Then he will ask the Father for a kingdom. That's in Psalm 2.8. The Father says, ask, and I will give it to you. Uh, the fourth point is he's granted the kingdom finally. That's Daniel 7.14. Fifth, the Messiah then, once he's granted the kingdom, returns to the earth and defeats the kings of the earth. That's Psalm 2.9 and Revelation 19.19-21 at the culmination of the campaign of Armageddon. And then at that time, Messiah will establish his rule and he will have dominion over the earth, and that is when he becomes king of all the earth. Daniel 7.27 and Revelation uh, chapter 20. Daniel 7.27 says, Then the kingdom and dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to the people, the saints of the Most High. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and all dominion shall serve and obey him. That doesn't happen until the second coming at the conclusion of the battle, the campaign of Armageddon. Now, that's kind of tied some things together for us. It's, it's had a little review, and we understand the framework in terms of the future fulfillment of this, of this uh, psalm and the prophecy in this psalm. Now, as we look at the next two verses... Verses 2 and 3, these describe the as certain aspects of the future rule of the Messianic king. And here we see that when he returns, at that time he receives dominion over all. It's an everlasting dominion, according to Daniel 7.27, and all dominions will serve him. And verse 2 tells us that at that time he will, he will rule over his enemies, and verse 3 says, His servants will willingly offer themselves to serve him completely. So verse 2 focuses on the submission of his enemies, and verse 3, the willing subjection of uh, his servants to him. 
So verse 2 reads, The Lord shall send the rod of your strength out of Zion. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Now this is a very important passage that emphasizes that it is Yahweh, God the Father in context, who sends... Um, the rod of your strength, your strong rod, as we'll see, out of Zion. It is Yahweh who is the one who's extending the dominion of the Messianic King, God the Son. So again, like many other things, we see the different roles of the Father, the Son. Uh, the Spirit's not mentioned here, but he is included also in other passages where we see the, the all three members of the, of the Trinity equally involved in fulfilling these promises. But there's a lot here. You read this and you don't catch uh, all the significance that here that, that's here. The the verb to send, the idea of the rod. What does that mean? Uh, what does it mean out of Zion? And then what does it mean to rule in the midst of your enemies? So we need to look at each of these things. The first word that we see in the Hebrew text is not Yahweh. The first word in the in the Hebrew text is the word for the rod. Uh, this is the word. It's a common uh, Hebrew word. It, it means It's the word matav, which simply means uh, a rod. Sometimes it refers to a shepherd's staff. Sometimes it uh, refers to, as a broader term, it can refer to the scepter of a king, and that makes a, a, a little more uh, sense here. And this is how it should be translated. In fact, this is... Um, the first part of this is from the Tanakh, the Jewish uh, Publication Society translation of, of, the, of the Old Testament. The Lord, uh, or so Yahweh, shall stretch forth the scepter of your strength, that is, the, sept, the, the, the Messianic king, out of Zion. And then it's the idea of ruling in the midst of your enemies. So uh, Psalm 2.9 is saying, you, uh, Yahweh speaking to the Messiah, shall break them with the rod of iron. See, Psalm 2.9 correlates. It's talking about this same rod, the scepter of the kingdom. And as we go through this, I want you to realize that, that this idea of the scepter of the Messiah is a critical idea that is strung throughout Scripture. So what we have a reference to in Psalm 110.2 is this idea that, that God is going to stretch forth this rod, and, and here the term rod or scepter represents his rule or his dominion. Now, what is that rule going to be like? Well, Psalm 2.9, uh, we have uh, uh, <clears throat> Yahweh speaking to the Messiah, and he says, You shall break them. Who's the them? The them are those kings that are united against God. He says, you shall break them with a rod of iron. So the rule of the Messiah is going to be a rule that is strong, a rule that is powerful, a rule that will crush his enemies. Uh, he will break them with a rod of iron. Very vivid, descriptive language. You shall dash them to pieces like a potter's vessel. Just think about uh, what it would be like to take some of your fine china and just drop it on the floor. Uh, that is how the Messiah is going to treat his, his enemies. He will crush them. But this idea is picked up in crucial passages in the New Testament. 
For example, in Revelation 2.27, now the context is a letter to the seven, to one of the seven churches, and he's talking about the fact that, that, that those who are overcomers will rule with Christ. And then he says, he shall rule them, and it's a direct quote of Psalm 2.9, he shall rule them with a rod of iron, they shall be dashed to pieces like the potter's vessels, as I also have received from my father. So the promise there for you and I is that we will be co-rulers with Christ in heaven and carrying out this dominion and this rule as those who are co, who co-reign with him. And Revelation 12.5, Revelation 12 gives that sort of a historical overview of the role of Israel in giving birth to the Messiah and the future reign of the Messiah. And so the woman that is presented there is Israel who gives birth to a male child who is defined as the one who is to rule all the nations with the rule of iron with a rod of iron. Now, this isn't sweet little Jesus, meek and mild, is it? This is the coming glorious king who is going to rule mankind, crush his enemies, and rule mankind with a rod of iron. It is going to be righteous and just, but also gracious and merciful. But the rod of iron is particularly directed toward his enemies, those who would oppose him. And Revelation 19.15 depicts this as he returns. Revelation 19 describes the return of Jesus on a white horse with his saints to defeat the armies of the Antichrist and the false prophet in the campaign of Armageddon, bringing the tribulation to its conclusion, sending the Antichrist and the false prophet to, uh, to, to judgment, to the lake of fire. And it's described in verse 15 that out of his mouth goes a sharp sword, that with it he should strike the nations. See how from Psalm 2 to Psalm 110 to, to the New Testament, we have this same theme. The Bible is consistent with itself, and we see that this, this thread runs all through Scripture, so we come to understand the nature of the Messianic rule. He himself will rule them with a rod of iron. He himself treads the winepress wine of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. That's what's been pictured from Revelation chapter 4, is that the Messiah must first come and rule and destroy and crush his enemies and then establish his kingdom. We have this uh, emphasis. It's called a mighty scepter, a scepter of power, and, and uh, uh, or the scepter of your strength in Psalm 110.2. But in Psalm 45, 6, it is described as a scepter of righteousness. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. Uh, A scepter of righteousness is the scepter of your kingdom. That is saying that your kingdom will be characterized by a perfectly righteous rule, not like any of the kings that we've had in human history. It will be a perfectly righteous rule because you love righteousness and hate wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, anointed you. Mashiach, that's that word meaning uh, anointed. Uh, so he's talk, it's, a, it's a messianic prophecy. Your God has anointed you with the oil of gladness more than your companions. Now, this is quoted when we get into Hebrews chapter 1, verse 8. 
And in Hebrews chapter 1, what is going on is that the writer of Hebrews is demonstrating that it is uh, Jesus Christ who is the uh, Messianic King, and that this Messianic King is greater than all of the angels related to his authority and related to his uh, position. We must be reminded that authority without power is meaningless, so it starts off establishing his power. I mean, excuse me, his authority. To the Son, he says, that's God the Father speaking, a direct quote from Psalm 45, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. He is speaking to the Son, giving him his throne. A scepter of righteousness is the scepter of your kingdom. This is his authority that comes from God uh, so that he can rule over his kingdom and that it is based on righteousness. And... um, in Hebrews, in verses 7 through 14, the context of these, this quote, the writer of Hebrews is de- demonstrating that the king priest is superior to angels with respect to his power as well. So he is given authority from God, and then he is given power. Power without authority is meaningless, and authority without uh, power is also meaningless. They must have the two. They must come together. What's interesting is that an Aramaic translation in a 4th century A.D. document called the Targum of Jonathan uh, paraphrases this, uh, Psalm 45.2, and says, Your beauty, O King Messiah, is greater than that of the sons of men. So it is clear that Even as late as the 4th or 5th century, uh, rabbinic scholars understood that that Psalm 45 was a messianic psalm and was directly addressing the Messiah and his future uh, rule and his future reign. And so we see this emphasis, and and this, this idea of his reign comes from the Davidic covenant, this is a covenant. I read the passage from 2 Samuel 7 this morning. It's covered in 2 Samuel 7, 12 through 16, Psalm 89, and 1 Chronicles 17, 11 to 14. So what we see is Psalm 110 connects this idea of scepter over to Psalm 2, 7. That is then quoted three times later on in Revelation, connecting it to the rule of the Messiah and our role in that in that rule. I then connected this to Psalm 45, which is connected to an understanding of the power and authority of the Messiah in Hebrews chapter 1, which in turn connects us back to understanding the Davidic covenant, that the Messiah is not some accident, but is the result of a promised covenant with David, uh, with, between God and David, that would be given this this rulership. And God, in the uh, Davidic covenant, promised David an eternal house, an eternal kingdom, and an eternal throne. Well, only someone eternal can fulfill uh, that responsibility. So that David's son, that's envisioned ultimately in in 2 Samuel 7 can't be purely human because he has to he's he is the one who's going to rule eternally uh the only way you could have that promise fulfilled is either in an eternal succession of children of sons who could fulfill that that role or someone or have that line culminating in someone who himself is eternal 
And so there's the connection between Second Samuel seven sixteen, your house and your kingdom shall be established forever before you, and Psalm eighty nine three, I have made a covenant with my chosen, I have sworn to my servant David, uh, that and Psalm eighty nine twenty, this all connects together and is also seen to be fulfilled in passages like Isaiah nine seven, talking about the Messiah uh, of his the, of the increase of his government and peace there will be no end upon the throne of David and over his kingdom to order it and establish it with judgment and justice from that time forward even forever. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this, and that the characteristic of that kingdom is described in Hebrews 11.4 is with righteousness he shall judge the, the poor, so that this kingdom is characterized by righteousness. It's what we see in Hebrews 1.8. So when we read this passage, it's not just talking about the sending forth of a rod, but, but that this is talking about the ex, that God the Father, Yahweh, is going to extend the dominion of the Messiah out from Zion. And uh, this is what is depicted in terms of God's establishment of the Davidic king. This is the one that is referred to by David as my Lord in verse 1. Now the word shall send is the Hebrew word shalak, and this is a word that means to send something, and it also has the idea of extending something that when it's especially when it's attached to something else. So the idea here is that Yahweh is extending the power of the messianic king. Now this word shalak, just just as a side note, when it comes into modern Hebrew, the main idea is to send. But to change words to give different connotations and build your vocabulary, you just add different, different change the verbs or change the prefix or suffix. And um, all, all, most of you are familiar with Idan Pesachovich, who's spoken here a few times. Uh, when I first met Idan, he was the director of the Jewish Agency for Israel in Ukraine. His job title was he was a shaliach. That's from the Hebrew word shalak. He has been sent out from Israel in order to recover the scattered Jewish people and bring them back to the land. So he is extending, he is an extension of Israel in order to bring people back. So that's the idea in this word, that extension of power. So the Lord is going to extend, uh, the rod of your power has the idea of your powerful rod or your majestic, your, your majestic a scepter. Uh, it's extending your, your dominion. Uh, out from Zion. So the center is in Zion. Now what we see when we study prophecy is when the Lord Jesus Christ returns at the second coming where he is defeating the forces of the Antichrist and the false prophet, the end of the campaign takes place in a location uh, just there in Jerusalem. Many identify it with the Kidron Valley there just below the Temple Mount called the Valley of Jehoshaphat. And uh, this is where that campaign ends. So he defeats the enemy there. That is ground zero for the establishment of the kingdom. And then God is going to extend it out from there, Zion being the center. Now, now what do we mean by this word, uh, by this word Zion? Uh, if you go to, if you've been with me to Israel, you always get a little confused because uh, they'll point out Mount Zion, which is just uh, 
just to the west of the old city of David. But but the scripture talks about the old city of David as as Zion, and the term has morphed, as it were, over time. Uh, Psalm 132.13 says, For the Lord has chosen, Yahweh has chosen Zion. He has desired it for his dwelling place. And in that context, it's talking about the old city of David, which is just a, a small little promontory, it seems, extending to the south uh, from the Temple Mount. And it doesn't look like it's, it was very large at all. It was really rather small when David captured it from the Jebusites. In Psalm 48.2, we read, Beautiful in elevation, the joy of the whole earth is Mount Zion on the sides of the north the city of the great king. So here we see Zion uh, being expanded out to refer to the whole city of Jerusalem, not just the original part that was the city of David, but all of the city of, of, of Jerusalem. It is uh, uh, also uh, designated that way in Zechariah chapter 2, verse 7, where it is extended to the entirety of the land. Psalm 87, 2, the Lord loves the gates of Zion more than all the dwellings of Jacob. And what is pictured there is the Zion gate uh, going into the old city of Jerusalem. And uh, it's pockmarked with bullets from the, uh, from the War of Independence in 1948. It's located on Mount Zion, which is just to the west of the city of David. Psalm 133, 133.3 says, It is like the dew of Hermon descending upon the mountains of Zion. So there it's the mountains of Zion. It's the whole city, the whole area. For there the Lord commanded the blessing, life forevermore. And in prophetic passages, Zion refers to Jerusalem as the capital of the Messianic king. We see this in Psalm 2.6, Yet I have set my king on my holy hill of Zion. So, we're told that the Lord Yahweh is going to extend the power, the dominion of the Messiah uh, out from Zion to rule over the whole earth. And then he is told by God the Father to rule. He is, it's a command. It is the same word that is used in Genesis 1.28 when God tells man that they are to rule over the fish of the sea, the birds of the air, the uh, uh, animals of the land, the cattle of the land, all of this, they are to rule over everything. That is, that is given to the Messiah. And see, what we must understand is God created the human race to rule over creation. But that rulership, that dominion was lost when Adam sinned. The only way mankind, the human race, can recover it is through the perfect man, the God-man, who returns and uh, establishes his kingdom. Only then will we fulfill that initial command of God to rule over creation. Psalm 8.5 refers to this. For you have made him, mankind, a little lower than the angels, and you have crowned him with glory and honor. You've made him to have dominion over the works of your hands, and you have put all things under his feet. That takes us back to the idea in Psalm 110.1 that, that the Messiah is to sit at the right hand of the Father until I make your enemies your footstool. And at that point, when Operation Footstool takes place, that is when the 
messianic king will rule and fulfill the initial mandate for the human race in Genesis 1, uh, 26 to 28. So what we see here is that, first of all, Yahweh will extend the messianic king's dominion, and then he will command him to rule, and he will take over that um, that rulership over over the planet in the kingdom. And he will rule in the midst of his enemies. And we have this picture of this in two passages. One is in Matthew, uh, Matthew chapter 25, verses 35 to 41, which is the, um, uh, where Jesus, 30, 31 to 46 rather, which is where, uh, Jesus talks about the judgment of the sheep and the goats. The sheep are the surviving, uh, Gentiles at the end of the tribulation. The goats are the, are the uh, other Gentiles who survive and they are judged. It's also described in Joel 3, 1 through 3. This is at the, after the conclusion of the uh, uh, tribulation, the battle for Armageddon. And we read, Therefore, behold, in those days and at that time, when I bring back the captives of Judah and Jer- Jerusalem, the final restoration of the Jewish people to their homeland, I will also gather all the nations, literally it's the Gentiles, I will gather all the nations and bring them down to the Valley of Jehoshaphat. That is where the campaign of Armageddon ended, uh, the Valley of Kidron right there in Jerusalem. The Lord Jesus Christ will enter into judgment with them there on account of my people, my heritage Israel, whom they have scattered among the nations. They have also divided up my land. And it is there that, that the Messiah will judge uh, judge the Gentiles. He will punish his enemies, Psalm 2.9, the rod of iron, and also Zechariah 4.17-18, through 18, which says, It shall be that whichever of the families of the earth do not come up to Jerusalem to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, on them there will be no rain. That's a picture of, uh, of judgment. And then what happens? At the end of the millennial kingdom, at the end of that thousand-year rule, we read in 1 Corinthians 15:24, then comes the end when he, the Messiah, delivers the kingdom to God the Father, when he puts an end to all rule and all authority and power. That's the end of human history. For he must reign till he has put all enemies under his feet. The final enemy is Satan and the revolt at the end of the thousand-year rule and reign. And he says then the last enemy that will be destroyed is death. So we get this panorama of the messianic rule just from the language that is used here in Psalm 110.2, which focuses on how God will eventually, through the Lord Jesus Christ, destroy his enemies. It's not going to occur on Election Day 2016. But it will occur. And so no matter what happens, we can take uh, comfort in the fact that God is still in control. We need to fulfill our responsibilities to vote, but God is still in control. And no matter what happens, we can have joy and peace and stability. That's one of the major messages of the Old Testament prophets is that no matter how bad it got, even with the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple and the scattering of the people, they could have peace and stability and tranquility knowing that God was in control and they could have joy in the midst of their circumstances wherever they were taken. And the reason for that is because of the Lord Jesus Christ who has paid the penalty for sin and because that has taken place, and if we believe on him, we know what our destiny is, 
and that, that no matter what happens here on earth, it will fade in comparison with eternal glory, with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we're thankful for this opportunity to trust or to, to study your word and to realize the career of the Messiah, uh, that it began with the suffering Messiah on the cross who paid the penalty for our sins, that the righteous uh, might be justified, that, that the, that the uh, people might be justified by his death, by his substitutionary death on the cross. And, Father, that that is not the end but the beginning, the foundation for the future, and that ultimately this will lead and culminate in his return and the establishment of a righteous rule that brings judgment upon uh, all the rules and the kingdoms of unrighteousness. But, Father, the issue for many people who may be here, many people who are listening, is, is their eternal destiny. There may be some listening who have never, uh, never made a decision in reference to Jesus Christ. They, they don't know about uh, salvation. They've never understood it. They don't know where they will go after they die. And the Scripture is clear that when we die, we either uh, go to be with you or we go to a, a holding place for eternal judgment. But, but the issue for us is to trust in Christ as Savior, and if we do that, then we know we have confidence. Scripture says these are written that you might know that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by knowing this, that we can have, and by believing in him, we can have eternal life. So right now, right where you sit, you can make this decision. You can say, I believe that. And, and what you believe in your soul, God the Father recognizes instantly. You don't need to pray, pray a prayer, raise your hand, walk an aisle, do anything else. If you believe Jesus died for your sins, you have eternal life. And for the rest of us, we need to recognize that these passages remind us that we will come back as church-age members to rule and reign with Christ and we are in preparation today for that future uh, time. And so we are, as it were, in training. We are future uh, priest-kings in training to rule and reign with Christ, and we need to take seriously our responsibility to grow and mature. For not all things are equal after the judgment seat of Christ. Everyone has a different responsibility, and that is uh, that, that will be determined by how well we grow, mature, and focus on our spiritual life in this age. We pray that we'll be challenged by these things in Christ's name. Amen.